Hello and welcome to Socialism, the Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. What do these gigantic figures mean for working class Americans? What effect will it have on living standards? And what about beyond? How will this spending play out on the world stage? What does it mean when Biden says America's back? Do these packages represent a new deal comparable to that of Roosevelt in the 1930s? And what results did FDR's version achieve? How should the left respond to this turnaround of approach? We ask what role does the left need to play in this era of political, economic, environmental and social crisis? This episode of Socialism looks at Biden's massive stimulus package and if it can solve the problems of US and world capitalism. Okay, so today's podcast is going to look at an extraordinary event that has recently taken place, which is the Biden stimulus package. It is gigantic, (laughs) up to five or six trillion dollars over the next eight years. And I think for workers and young people in Britain, looking down the barrel of more cuts and austerity to pay for the COVID spending on top of the decade of austerity that we've had, that is truly eye-watering. But what does it actually represent? What impact is it going to have on the US working class and on the world still in crisis and suffering from the pandemic? And what does it tell us about politics, about capitalism and about class struggle in the 2020s? We're here with Tony Sonwa to discuss all of this. Tony is the secretary of the Committee for a Workers International, the CWI, which is the world socialist organisation to which the Socialist Party is affiliated. Hello, Tony. Hi, Sarah. You all right? Yes, good, thanks. So what do these gigantic figures mean for working class Americans and what effect is this going to have on the living standards that have been in such a dire situation for so long? Well, I think that's a key question and the figures are you know, quite mind-blowing when you just look at them as crude figures. Yeah. And I think the first question we have to ask ourselves is why has Biden gone down this particular track? Mm-hmm. Biden was not on the left, even the so-called left of the Democratic Party. He's coming to power, he's moved from the centre or the right of the Democrats and has gone for this incredible stimulus package. Mm. And he's gone further than just a stimulus package. He's encouraging people to join trade unions and it would appear he's moved in quite a radical direction. Is he a socialist? Well, we can maybe come on to discuss that in a moment (laughs) because I don't think that is exactly an accurate description of where he intends to go with this particular package because what he's doing is reflecting the incredible pressure that US capitalism is under. US capitalism in the course of this pandemic, like everywhere else, has been faced with an absolute catastrophe and an economic collapse. It's had a devastating effect on the living standards of the working class on unemployment levels, on the catastrophe of housing in the US, where you have millions facing eviction or have faced the threat of eviction during the course of the pandemic. And the US ruling class really has had to switch strategy to Mm. take into account what they are terrified of was the consequences of the Black Lives Matter movement, that they saw within that the potential for massive social explosions. And at the same time, they also see they've had to take extraordinary measures to try and get out of this economic recession that they've been plunged into, which was developing before the pandemic, made worse by the pandemic. And it shows how flexible capitalism as a system is. It's moving to try and save itself. Now, in practice, to answer your question, Sarah, <laughs> let's not be like the normal politicians and avoid questions <laughs> that are posed in interviews. What's it going to mean in practice? Well, 
It'll be wrong for us to conclude it's going to have no effect. A package of this size is inevitably going to have an effect. There's three packages so far that he's announced, or four. The most recent was the American Families Plan, worth an estimated $1.8 trillion. For the US, that's going to have quite significant changes. They're bringing in preschool childcare facilities, at least a layer of the working population. None of this has existed, of course, in the US before. We've had virtually no welfare state. According to the New York Times, if you take a single mum with a three-year-old working on the minimum wage, earning about $16,000 a year... They calculate, whether it's accurate or not, I don't know, but we'll take it as read, that that is possible that through the different benefits and gains that she would gain an additional nearly $5,000 a year. So it's quite substantial as far as that is concerned. He said with the federal infrastructure projects that he's brought in, that all of the workers employed on that will be paid the minimum wage of $15 an hour, you know, which, of course, the CWI fought for and initiated an important campaign on that mm-hmm. some years ago. So it'd be wrong to say it's not going to have any effect. It's going to have an effect on a certain layer. He's giving a one-off payment of people to $1,400 going straight into their bank accounts. But on the other side, you know, we have to pose the question... While it will have an effect for a layer, what does it really mean in terms of solving the underlying problems? Mm. The packages are enormously popular. There's no yeah. question about that. They're bound to be. Yeah. If you've been through a position of you know one of the deepest recessions since the 1930s and you suddenly find your bank account $1,400 bigger, he's going to be quite happy with that initially. But on the other side, if we look at the position, is it sufficient to offset the full effects of the recession? Even with all of this being introduced, Mm. there are still 10 million fewer jobs in the US than what there was at the beginning of this particular crisis. 50% of households earning less than $35,000 a year are behind in their mortgage and housing payments. 25% of them say they don't have enough food. So it's against this background that we have to see that it's not going to be sufficient. However popular it is, it's going to have a certain limited effect. It's not going to be sufficient to really completely take the US economy back to a position of a massive upswing and a boom. So not all of that is going to be like spending, because some of this is no, going to go well, a debt that, hole, isn't that's it? That's a very important point. Nikos Rubini, a fairly well, a notable economist, he calculates that of the $1,400 that's being paid out mm-hmm. to everybody's Probably about a third of it will find its way back into being spent in the economy because the rest will be used to pay off debt. Now, that obviously reduces debt, means people have got a bit more leeway on the credit cards, etc. But Mm. it's not going to fundamentally all go back into the economy. And then it's also linked with the question, is this sufficient in terms of opening up a period of growth for capitalism Mm. of a sustainable basis on a lasting basis? And we think, you know, from the CWI, that while it's very significant, it's going to have an effect. It's boosted Biden's popularity. There's Mm -hmm. no question about that. It is not going to avert the developments of further crisis down the track in the short term, partly because of the position in the US and partly also because of international factors which are developing in relation to the global economy, which maybe we can come on to touch upon a little bit later. Definitely. I think we should come on to that. But I mean, you touched on a few things there, the enormous payments, also talking about the trade unions, the you know building things. <laughs> Is it a new deal? Is this FDR Mark II? And also, like you said, there's been a bit of a change around for US capitalism. Does this mark such a substantial change that this is the end of neoliberalism as we've known it? 
Well, I think you've raised there, Sarah, a number of different points there. Firstly, does it compare with Roosevelt's New Deal? Well, there is a big element of Roosevelt's New Deal contained within what he's doing. But there are a number of points arise from that. I mean, what he's doing with the projects, the infrastructure projects. And by the way, the infrastructure in the US is absolutely catastrophic when you go and see it there. You know, he's having an investment in that. There's all the other packages that he's brought in. And it does, in many respects, replicate elements of the New Deal. I mean, Roosevelt encouraged people to join trade unions, and the unions use that to support their organising drive. And it's a major break with the position that Biden has even posed the question of, you know, it's a positive thing to be pro-union. And we should remember this is against a backdrop, according to opinion polls, 65% of the US population view trade unions in a favourable light. Now, the question is, there's elements of the New Deal here, but how does it fully compare with the New Deal itself? Well, if you take, it's difficult to draw exact comparisons, as you say, this package was about five to six trillion, let's say, at this particular stage. If you take what the total expenditure of the New Deal was, when it was introduced by Roosevelt, and also the costs, because some of it is still being paid for now, in terms of some of the benefits that still exist, all of that taken together, including what they're paying now, up to about 2009, it meant that the whole thing of the New Deal amounted to about 50 trillion US dollars <laughs> by today's prices. Yeah. So you have to put that in context now. Of course, it's not exactly a direct comparison, but it's not at the level yet of the New Deal. And incidentally, there's been a little bit of people from the big corporations complaining about this massive hike in the corporation tax from mm. 21 to, my God, 28%. I mean, that's really incredible. But we should remember... Under Obama, it was 35%. At the end of the Second World War, it was about 50%. And these guys are complaining that it's gone up from 21 to 28%. So even on that, he's introduced other taxes on millionaires' incomes as well. It's true, and it's a shift, but by historical standards, it's not really fully comparable to what has existed before. So that's on the one side. On the other side, we also have to pose a question, because many people say the New Deal opened the gateway for you know, the massive economic boom mm. that developed in the US and globally after the Second World War. Well, actually, it's a bit more complicated than that, because the New Deal had a certain effect, but it was not the decisive factor. The decisive factor that opened the way for the massive upswing that took place after the Second World War was partly the consequences of the Second World War itself, mm -hmm. the massive armaments program that developed there, and then the whole international situation, the development of the Global Marshall Plan, the new markets that opened up after the war, that was what was a deciding factor in terms of opening up the period of boom in the capitalist economy that took place there, not the issue of the New Deal. So this will have an effect. It's true. It's going to have a conjunctural effect politically, mm. but it's not the end of the story by any stretch of the imagination. And of mm. course, within the US, you have that stack of unemployment, you have massive poverty. And you have so much combustible material, as we've seen with the shooting of the youth, again, which has triggered big movements. You know, they've been compelled because of the pressure to take action, imprisoning and finding guilty the policemen who executed George. And, you know, that represents a little bit of a change. How far it's going to go in terms of carrying out a real restructuring and purging of the US police or the racists, mm. which undoubtedly are a component part of it, and carrying out brutal attacks against young blacks in particular. So they're buckling a bit to the mood that's there, but they're doing it from the point of view of trying to firm up or shore up their system, and they're not going to be able to do that. And the best thing will be from this is if there was a bigger economic upswing, mm. 
Mm-hmm. If you had these infrastructure projects, and by the way, on infrastructure projects, the majority of them, as I understand it, in reports that I have read, they're actually not so much new projects, but extensions of existing projects are already there. But if there was a bigger upswing in the economy, more people coming to work, and if the trade union bureaucracy was capable of doing its job, which is a very big question, mm-hmm. if they could capitalise on the fact that 65% of the population have a favourable disposition towards trade unions and actually get out and recruit them and organise them, then, of course, it would be a more beneficial position. But unfortunately, the trade union bureaucracy is not in that position, least of all in the US. But nevertheless, this will have an effect. It's not an exact repetition of the New Deal. But inevitably, at a certain stage, illusions in Biden are going to dim as the effects are felt, as we go into new international choppy waters and storms also hit the US, which are going to open the way for bigger social explosions than what we've even seen at the present time. And factored into that is the massive political crisis which exists in there. Trump has not gone away. He's hardened his grip within the Republicans. Mm. And by the way, with the stimulus packages, all of them have not yet fully got through the Senate. We have to see what happens with that. And they're in a major political crisis there. And that is waiting in the wings to try and capitalise on the position if Biden goes into you know, a more difficult situation in the course of the next years. Thanks, Tony. So you're kind of saying it's not a new New Deal, <laughs> but it has got some comparisons with it. But is it new as in is it the end of neoliberalism? Ah, that's an important point. I mean, it is a break. I mean, this is the thing what we've seen with the global stimulus packages that mm. we've seen. I mean, globally, all of the stimulus packages amount to about 17 trillion US dollars. Spending on the pandemic. On the pandemic, you yeah. know, the stimulus packages in the it's pandemic. Incredible. It accounts for roughly about 18% of global GDP. It's a major shift of policy that we've seen taking place. Why? Because they did it, they had no choice, because otherwise they'd have had a complete implosion. The whole system would have just gone into meltdown. Mm. And they've had these stimulus packages, and all they've done really with them is stop you know, things falling through the floor. Thus far is the position with the stimulus packages. It's the furloughs and the, the, furloughs of the money that. that's been given out, the yeah. subsidies, all of that. I mean, they had no choice, or else you'd have had social rebellion would have been mm. posed as it has developed in some countries, mm. as maybe we can discuss a little bit later. But does it mean an end of neoliberalism? Well, it does in the sense they've abandoned the neoliberalism as we saw it in the 1990s. Mm. Uh, the whole ideology was no state intervention, privatisation and austerity packages. They were compelled partly to do that in the financial crisis in 2007-2009, but they did it really just to prop up the banks and gave the banks money fundamentally Mm. during that. But that was a certain tilt. This has gone much further than that, and in that sense it is. Now, does it mean to say that there's not going to be austerity? Mm. I don't think that's true. Capitalism means austerity, and they'll zigzag in different policies, and Mm. we can see a combination of both. It doesn't mean to say the end of privatisation. We can see a reversion back to some state intervention and also privatisation taking place. It was zigzag all over the place from that point of view. But it represents, you know, a change from the dominant neoliberalism that we saw in the 1990s. That doesn't fit in terms of the crisis that they are now confronting. And they've been obliged to change. But it doesn't mean to say no austerity, no privatisation under certain circumstances to do. And you will probably see... Speaking with a very broad brushstroke, you know, internationally, there'd be zigzags in the policies that are adopted by different governments. It's part of the crisis that they're in, I guess, or the political exactly. crisis. So ending neoliberalism properly, fully remains our job. <laughs> we'll come on to that later on. So we've looked at the impact of the stimulus package on the US itself, but obviously what happens in the US is not isolated from the rest of the world. 
What impact do you see the stimulus package having beyond the US? The stimulus packages beyond the US, they will hope through this that they're going to have a hold position or open up a big economic growth in the US, looking towards economic growth in China, and that that will somehow miraculously drag the world economy out of recession. But there's other factors coming into this, and there's contradictory factors. For example, one of the effects of the stimulus packages has been to force up the dollar on the global currency markets. Now, that has had a disastrous effect already in the neocolonial world. Mm. It is a key factor which has given a massive twist towards inflation in Brazil and Argentina because their imports are much more expensive. So even that is a complicating factor in the situation. And you also have this other problem which is there, and that is the continued development of trade wars and tariff wars and conflict reflecting the different interests between the different powers that are there. And even China's growth that we've seen, I mean, they've been talking about in the first quarter, it was 18% growth rate. I mean, it's quite staggering. China's emerged from this crisis, strengthened really relative to the US. They've managed it more effectively. But even there, their projected growth rates for the whole year is 5%, which is down on their initial expectations of 6%. And that's not going to be sufficient. And there's not going to be the markets there, either for China and the US, to drag the whole of the world economy out of the economic turmoil that they're in and open the way for a complete era of capitalist boom and development. That is not on the order of the day. Now, does it mean to say there can be no economic recovery in any countries? No, it doesn't mean that. We are seeing, as economies have opened up, there has been some growth. Those growth rates, they can appear quite impressive. But we had to put in the context of what's happened. I mean, I think I'm right in saying that in the UK, they're talking about 8 or 10% growth rate. They're hoping for a bounce back. Mm. But we have to put this in the context. You're coming out of the deepest recession for 300 years, yeah. where the economy contracted by much more than just 10% over the whole period. So there will be a certain revival. Will it be sustained? How far it will go? That's the big question. And all of the pointers are there's major doubts and it's not the main line of development that we're going to see in the global economy in the next period. We're in this period of capitalist crisis and the underlying problem they have is where are the markets? That's the problem that they have. And they're combining this, even with the recoveries that have taken place, the key question we have to ask ourselves is who's gaining from that? Even where you're having an expansion of the labour market, what is taking place? You are seeing this tendency in a whole number of countries of fire and rehire. Mm. You're seeing new jobs open up and where they do. It's on worse pay and conditions mm. for the working class. And that will have a negative effect on the economy itself. So we're not seeing you know, where the revivals are taking place. It's not on the basis of millions of new jobs on good and high wages. It's on very precarious conditions and on low wages mm. is what is happening as far as the mass of people are concerned. Okay, thanks, Tony. So that's the kind of economic, really, the impact of the stimulus package. But Biden's really talking it up, isn't he? He's banging the America's back drum. And you said, you know, there's going to be a bit of an impact from this stimulus from Biden and so on. Do you think, well, from what you said, it doesn't sound like it is possible to see the end of the decline of US imperialism as a world power that's been the feature, really, of the last period? Well, that's the key question, because, you know, COVID was the great accelerator Mm. and it accelerated all of the trends of the protracted decline of US imperialism and the rise of China. And that has continued and it's not gone away. And the tensions and the conflicts it's provoked between the US and China were evident under Trump. And that is not ended under Biden. The exchanges and negotiations that have taken place 
The language that's been used in some of the negotiations, I mean, it's been brutal yeah. exchanges. And that's not an accident. It reflects this problem that they're in. And US imperialism, they're not evading or getting out of this dilemma that they have. They have no choice but to engage and to an extent have a confrontation with China. But China's on the way up. I mean, it now accounts for 18% of global GDP. And they're not going to be able to change that position. Now, this is playing out in a very powerful way internationally because, you know, Biden, as you say, has used this term, you know, America's back. But back to what? They're mm-hmm. back to a completely new world situation. And it's marked by really the trends to try and attempt to fall, very unstable, but different blocks, you know, around East power. Biden's going for this democratic alliance. And by the way, it stinks the hypocrisy. It's the democratic alliance They want to bring in Bolsonaro from Brazil. They want to bring in Modi from India. Modi's foreign minister, I think it is, has been invited to participate in the G7 here that's taken place. They're courting brutal, you know, vicious, repressive regime leaders under the broad banner of the alliance of the Democrats against the repressive Chinese. And the Chinese are also trying to attempt to establish their own particular spheres of influence and different blocs. Everybody's trying to court India, but there's a major conflict between India and China over Kashmir and other spheres of influence in Asia. It's a battle royal, you know, not a military battle, but economic and political battle going on in Sri Lanka between the Chinese and the Indians who are desperately trying to struggle for gain extra leverage. You have the spectacle of Modi now presenting himself or trying to present himself as the champion of the Tamil people to get more leverage within Sri Lanka. You know, it's also an attempt to win support in Tamil Nadu in the recent state elections that have gone off. But that is a conflict that is there. And that's not going to go away. And, of course, you're facing with this declining position of U.S. imperialism. And there's no prospect of them going back to a sort of unipolar world where U.S. imperialism rules the roost in an unchallenged manner. You now have a series of powers that are challenging U.S. imperialism. It's still the largest power, both militarily and economically, but it's on a downward trajectory. China's on an ascendancy. How long that lasts for maybe is a point for debating, but it is there. And there is another sphere, and that is the role of Russia. Putin has these massive problems domestically, reflected in the recent process that take place. But there's a bit of a tendency for China and Russia to cozy up together, which is going to be a big problem for U.S. imperialism. And all of these attempts at forming different blocs have massive tensions within them as well. And it's partly reflecting the economic tensions within the EU. The idea that the EU is just going to fall behind Biden and accept his leadership in a conflict against China Mm. doesn't follow, certainly not in a straight line. German capitalists are dependent on the Chinese market for the car exports. There's been a massive increase of Chinese investment, not only into Latin America, to Africa and to Asia, which there has been, it's been dramatic in all of those areas, but also into Europe. You've had massive investment from the Chinese into Portugal, into Italy, Mm. into Greece, into Southern Europe, into parts of Eastern Europe, All of which is going to cause big problems for the idea that the EU is just going to become a a sort of a part of the wagon on the train of Biden's alliance for democracy. It's going to be much more complicated that in terms of the clashes and conflict of interests which are opening up. And you can see how explosive that can become. It can become military exchanges in certain areas at a certain stage. We couldn't exclude that. We can't exclude that. We've seen it already. You know, the threat was there recently. It was a build up of the Russian forces on the Ukrainian border. 
was partly reflecting that. You've seen skirmishes between China and the Philippines mm. in the recent period. You see, you know, all sorts of other developments, the notching up of the extreme tensions, which can give rise to all sorts of accidental exchanges in the South China Seas, where everybody's looking east at the moment, you know, deployment of EU aircraft carriers, British aircraft carrier out that way is a pointer there in terms of the tensions that are there. And it means that America is in this contradictory position. It wants to assert itself, which it is diplomatically, but it hasn't got the power or the weight to do it. And we shouldn't underestimate as well what Biden is capable of. You know, we see all these policies, the left, who've been a bit wrong-footing, you know, and have just gone down uncritical of Biden, you know, because of his stimulus packages. But what about what he's done about Cuba? Mm. What about what he's done about Venezuela? Mm. No end to the sanctions there mm. in terms of the position. Open support for the right-wing vicious opposition, self-declared president in Venezuela. Open support to want to overthrow the regime in Cuba. None of that's ended. And the Biden administration is not going to be a friend of the peoples of the neo-colonial world or the peoples of the world in the period now that's opening up. And that will be exposed and it will add to the conflict back inside the US as well. But they're not going to be in a position, probably, to go for the out-and-out military interventions that they've had. You can have skirmishes, but Iraq, the one-power position of US imperialism stamping its foot on the planet as the world's policeman, well, that policy died in the killing fields of Iraq with the, the military catastrophe and the consequences that flow from that. And now we're in a different era. doesn't mean there won't be military exchanges, but it'd be more through proxy wars probably, and some conflicts can develop between the blocs and powers at certain stages in some areas. And it's absolutely crucial, isn't it, that you look at what's happening domestically with the stimulus package, but you don't separate that from the foreign policy. One of the things that I've always heard people in the CWI say is that foreign policy is always an extension of domestic policy. And you mentioned there about the left... In your view, how should the left respond to this package and to Biden? We've seen AOC, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez in the US, saying anyone criticising Biden was doing that from a position of privilege. Obviously, we don't share that position. What is our approach? What do you think? And how should the left really be responding to this? Well, I think that's important. But I mean, it comes down to the whole issue in that case of Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, they've adopted a position basically because Biden's gone with the stimulus packages. Ergo, no criticism of Biden is acceptable. And that goes with their policy. Their whole framework is works with the Democratic Party. You know, and where does that lead them? It will leave them probably silent on most of his international policies and hypocrisy of what they're doing internationally. It's um, an impossible position for you know, a socialist really. Uh, absolutely impossible. I mean, we will support any measure that is introduced that benefits the working class. Mm. But we also have a responsibility to tell the truth. It doesn't mean to say we can trust Biden. We have no confidence in Biden. He will act for the interests of US capitalism ultimately and he's bent in this particular direction because of the pressure that is there and they have no choice but to try and do it to try and firm up or attempt to get a more stable rule for the capitalism in the course of the next months and the next years but you know Cortez and Sanders I mean they've just fallen in really behind Biden and behind the Democrats now and they will see this as a vindication of their position but it's a short-sighted attitude in terms of what will also happen, you know, at a certain stage. As the crisis comes back to bite, as it will do in the US, opening the way for more of a struggle. But this is part of a general problem. We have, unfortunately, the left, the organised official left, in the course of this whole crisis, have really fallen in behind the capitalist class in one form or another. 
and have not raised an independent socialist or independent class position. Mm. They capitulated to the idea of national unity. It was easy in America for Cortez to attack Trump, of course, they did that. Mm. But they didn't distinguish between or come out clearly in opposition to the capitalist Democratic Party or to the pro-capitalist leaders of the Democratic Party like Biden. And unfortunately, that's been repeated elsewhere. You've had the deepest crisis of global capitalism since the 1930s. And the so-called left, where it exists, has been absolutely miserable in how it's responded to it. And that applies everywhere. And we see yesterday what has now also taken place, the sorts you have in there. Cortez says, OK, you criticise Biden, you're only doing it because you've got a privileged position. But what do we see? Last year she does an interview where she says she's not even certain she'll continue with politics more than one term. Such is her commitment to the struggle. Yeah, most people can't afford to not be affected Exactly. By and now we have, what do we see? Well, that's been echoed yesterday. In Spain, you've had the PP, the right-wing party, and the right-wing have got the majority in the Madrid Autonomous Areas elections, which mm-hmm. have taken place. Iglesias was heading the Podemos list. He went into government with Pessoa, the socialist, which he shouldn't have done, pro-capitalist party like Pessoa. He resigns from that, stands for election for the Madrid Regional Autonomous Authority, loses that. They actually increased their seats per day, from 7 to 10, but the left didn't win. Pessoa got his worst election results ever in Madrid. And what's the response of Iglesias, the leader of Podemos? He's resigned from politics, given up all of his positions, and is just walking away. Fine for him, he can go back to get a job probably as a university lecturer. But this is the character, unfortunately, of the left here. Here in the UK, you see a similar reflection of that, not in the sense they just walked away from politics, but they've just given up Corbyn Easterson and not conducted an effective real struggle against the counter-revolution, which has been taking place in the Labour Party in Britain under Keir Starmer, the consequences of which are going to be reflected probably in tomorrow's local elections. Mm. I don't know when the broadcasts are going out, but <laughs> whenever the local elections are, with a likely loss of Hartlepool mm. in the by-election which will take place there. That's right, it's fallen to the Socialist Party as part of the Trade Unionist and Socialist Coalition to keep that anti-austerity flag flying in the local elections and in the mayoral and elections. The Scottish Tusk doing it in Scotland. Everyone else has retreated from the idea of having a socialist voice, a protest voice at the ballot box. Right. Uh, absolutely, and they've sort of, I mean, they're not speaking of socialism. In Germany, the, the Linke Party, at least a three-way faction fight is going on and the power struggle going on there. Flair's, you know, looking maybe to go in a coalition. I mean, none of them putting an independent class position. None of them really campaign on a combative socialist programme. And those are the so-called newer parties, Podemos, the left bloc, the similar in relation to Portugal. And, you know, as we've had the deepest crisis, we've had, in effect, betrayal as far as the left is concerned in the sense of putting forward an independent class position. And we're therefore faced with the task of rebuilding the movement. Now, there are interesting and important international developments taking place. We have to see this is part of a process. These parties like Podemos and the left bloc, to put it in a, you know, in a, in a summary position, they were really the product of the radicalisation that took place, and it was a radicalisation, big youth movements, the Indignados movement in Spain, they were really a bit of a reflection of that, but it was not a conscious reflection of the working class. Now, it's very interesting what has happened, and we have to see how it's developed. We had a note of caution here, but what has happened in Peru? Out of nowhere, you've had a new party, Peru Libre, has emerged. It came second 
in the presidential elections. And by the way, last year, three presidents were overthrown in Peru. And by the way, every single president for the last 30 years, I think it has been, might be 25, has actually been indicted for corruption in Peru. I mean, every single president. I mean, it's quite incredible. But nevertheless, this party emerged, but the party was a product of an extremely bitter, militant strike of the teachers. Mm. A strike of the teachers which was not convened by the teachers' unions. The rank and file went over the head, and the leader who's emerged at this party was the leader of that strike. And it's very interesting. We have to see how that process develops, but it gives a little bit of a pointer as to what could develop elsewhere of parties emerging as a product of the struggle by the working class. Mm-hmm. And that both parties maybe take on a more cohesive form, we have to see. It doesn't mean they've got a fully worked out revolutionary socialist position, but maybe this would be part of a process. And these parties that we've seen formed up to the present time have not been fit for purpose in terms of the tasks and the programs that are necessary to deal with this crisis that's unfolded globally in the course of the last years and has accelerated dramatically during the pandemic. Brilliant. Okay, well, uh, that's the end of my questions. So thank you very much, Tony. I think you've shed light on a lot there and we look forward to having you back on the podcast soon to hear more about Peru and other developments around the world. (laughs) Okay, thanks very much, Sarah. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers International. In this track, you heard Tony Sornwa speaking to Sarah Sachs-Eldridge and I'm Burkai Kartan. This episode was edited by Nick Hart. You can find further reading in the notes in your podcast app. If you want to get in touch, email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Socialism the podcast relies on funding from our members and supporters. We have no business backers or adverts, which allows us to maintain our political independence. Can you help fund this podcast? You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk slash donate. Even more importantly, do you agree with the ideas of the Socialist Party as we raised here? Get in touch and find out about becoming a member. Apply to join at socialistparty.org.uk slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for a Workers International by visiting socialistworld.net. Till next time, solidarity.